0: After a couple of weeks of enforced absence, it was great to get back to a new podcast with Rachel Vahey of AJ Bell. We talk through the implications for the financial services industry of the spring statement, and from there segue into a discussion of advice and guidance on which we'll all be hearing a lot more this year. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you have any feedback or comments, do please get in touch or even just leave a review, especially if it's a one. So, so, look, the two things I really want to talk with you about and really want to get your input on are, first of all, the spring statement. And I know we're a few days down the line now, but it's kind of, I think there was perhaps more in there than the industry might have expected. And there's some, some long term implications from that and what it means for the industry. And then that perennial question that keeps coming around at the moment about the advice, guidance boundary and you know, what we should wish for and what might happen next. And I saw that bloke, Andy Bell spouting off in money marketing (laughs) the other day about it so i'd be really interested in your take on that if that's okay yeah yeah that sounds great just kind of high level first of all what was your impression of the spring statement what did you make of it
1: again it was probably just to echo what you've said it was um i remember when i was coming into work on um wednesday morning because i actually went into the office as well which is a, a, an unusual thing a treat. and the, there was so much you know listening to wake up to money uh, from radio five and it was all you know this is not a budget do not think this is a budget you step away from it it's not a budget nothing to see here just carry on and then actually at the end of it it was a budget yeah, it was, wasn't, it?
0: wasn't it yeah
1: exactly yeah yeah and there was there was a lot in there and we're chatting now aren't we um, Monday about midday and I know from listening to the radio this morning um, that it's it might not yet have finished either there's still some rumblings on about whether Sunak is going to take some other measures because there's so much talk about how he actually just missed his target and he just did not help I thought the people the... who really really needed helping with the, the, yeah. the cost of living crisis and the people who are on benefits who will only see that going up by 3.1 percent when they're getting a 54 percent increase in mm-hmm. their energy costs and and the cost of food and things like that and that he's going to have to maybe think up something else because the measures that he put in place to try and take the sting out of it just didn't hit the people who really, really desperately needed them.
0: No, I, I agree. And I think the media coverage the next day, the newspaper headlines were, must have made very uncomfortable reading for him and mm. others in the in the government and the Conservative Party. And, and, you know, that 5p cut in fuel duty in the general sense was, well, is that it? Is that all you've got? It certainly felt like it was you could feel the gravitational pull of that anticipation of the general election and the extent to which the various announcements were all framed, you know, with that in mind. And mm-hmm. and and I think a lot of people up and down the country, as you said, were a bit like, well, well that's all very well, but what about our problems today? You know, what are, what are you doing to fix fix what's right in front of us right now? So it'd be really interesting to see if we, if we do get more over the next week or two, um, you know, how they would deliver that and where the money would come from and and then politically how they will pass it off as oh yeah no, we meant to do this all the lot
1: you know yeah, yeah there was a, there was a lot of framing wasn't there because yeah. we issued a press comment on Friday yeah. which was entitled Sunak hasn't stopped the tax tsunami and this is yeah. some of our guys just crunching the numbers on this and I I think a lot of this is even if you're looking at workers who were a little bit more targeted, I think, with what he was trying to relieve the pain. Yeah. But if you're looking, even if you're looking at workers, you you realize just because there are so many moving parts within this, it's it's really confusing for people who spend their lives surrounded by financial numbers and thinking about effects and percentages. And, and you know, for us guys who we, we do this a lot. You know, even us, it's just so confusing. And you're thinking about, well, okay, so this tax has gone up and this but this threshold is going up. And then is national insurance a tax anyway? Mm -hmm. Does it really affect me? When does that kick in? What else does it mean? When does it kick in for employers? how does that actually work and then you're looking at things like the the freezing of the tax thresholds and the oh, fiscal yeah. drag yeah and actually the answer is that anything that he's trying to do to lessen the tax burden is really not going to be that effective when you take a step back and just look at it as a position of today or even in 2024 25 once the tax cut comes in if it comes in and you're comparing that with just the the situation a year ago of, of what it was before the national insurance hike was announced and then you you're just comparing those two you realize that actually people are going to be paying an awful lot more tax than they were previously and although the measures announced last week will lessen it a little bit you know, It's only taking the edge off it when you look at the whole numbers and the amount of money that the Chancellor is expecting to receive. And There was a very good table in the OBR report, and it showed that SABOR, if we take the year 2025-26, mm-hmm. then he's expecting to get £18 billion pounds from the threshold freeze, yes. and he's expecting to get £18 billion pounds from the health and social care levy so let's say that's 36. He's giving back 4 billion yep. from the national insurance contribution increase in the threshold and he's giving back 6 billion yep. from the income tax. But if you look at all of those all together hmm. that's still like 30, you know, 26, 25, 26 billion pounds that he's he's bringing in.
0: Yeah, two two things that really struck me from Rachel Reeves's response to his statement. First of all, she definitely shouldn't pursue a career in stand-up comedy because I think I think she's a really good politician. I really like her. I think she thinks well. The whole theme, the riff she was pursuing of the kind of Alice in Wonderland thing which kind of almost worked as a comedy routine but definitely didn't work (laughs) but the substance of it was the point she was making that he's trying to pretend to be a tax-cutting chancellor whilst actually raising taxes as you just said you know I thought she was absolutely right about that and I think he's he's said before I'm a tax-cutting chancellor he wants to present himself as a tax I probably wants to be a tax-cutting chancellor but as you said actually he's doing exactly the opposite he's just taking more and more of us and there are good reasons for that he's got to try and balance the books but that doesn't entirely work when people can't afford to eat
1: no and as you say it just just doesn't follow the narrative that he wants it to follow but the figures are there and i think it's the extent if you know what i mean the the extent of the the tax that you can raise from a a threshold freeze which does you're not increasing anything are you that's well, that's the whole point.
0: <laughs> but, it's, quite, it's quite sneaky, you know isn't what I mean? It? It's, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. just just kind of of it feels like it's like shrinkflation. There's a bit of sleight of hand going yeah. on, you know, the prices stay the same, but I just somehow seem to be worse off. How did that happen?
1: Yeah. It's almost subtle, isn't it? And I think again, that's just difficult sometimes to get your head around if you know if you're thinking about something completely different in your everyday life every day, and you're not thinking about these things then to understand the whole effect that an income tax threshold freeze can have, especially in an environment which is supercharged with inflation so, at such a high rate, then, you know, it's so a difficult thing to understand.
0: It clearly makes the use of allowances that much more important. I mean, it's, you know, the industry always says, use your ice allowance, use your pension allowance, you know, take what you can as as, as Mm. tax shelters where they're available, use your CGT allowance. Well, it becomes that much more important, doesn't it? So, I mean, undoubtedly, we're going to see more messaging from the industry about, you know, use it or lose it. Do you think the industry should be pushing harder on those kind of issues and pushing back and saying, look, you know, this is... Do you think we should be lobbying more to say to stand up for consumers and say you know you you can't keep doing this? Just, I mean, the pension allowance hasn't gone up for years. The lifetime allowance freeze and that bloke Andy Tully was, was <laughs> who's co- uh, no, he? Never from heard of him. Some some guy at Canada Life was quoted in Money Marketing uh, this week you know, yeah. highlighting the increase in the tax take from the lifetime allowance because that's been frozen. So. You know, I'm sure the Treasury doesn't want to hear it, but do you think the industry should be pushing these issues more? I
1: think so. I think, there's, um, as you say, it's the people who are around about the thresholds and uh, who are going to feel the, the sharpest burn with all of this, and we, and we need to help them. And, and there's so much you can do to try and keep just out of these thresholds. We did some back of the fag packet do people still have those these days they don't do they envelope they maybe. don't no back of um a beer mat okay
0: there we go yeah, okay. still, yeah we'll still, go for still, that. it's still, if people vice, still yeah it's still yeah do
1: we still go to pubs oh, yeah, yeah we do that. so we did it's, some of those calculations and we worked out it's roughly i think another two million people we thought might be dragged into higher rates wow. of tax over the next five years so i just wanted just to pick up that point and just say that actually that is where a lot of focus is going to go isn't it to uh, how to keep people just under these higher rate bands and and also because of aspects like childcare as well and childcare benefits and as well as protecting dividends and from the NI increases and, and placing them within ISAs and pensions well, back to, sorry could to go yeah. back to your point where you were saying do we do enough I think we do. I think there's always more we can do. I think on this, and and there's lots of aspects about pensions reform that we we should be carrying on and making the point. And Andy and Andrew Tully, he's right in in highlighting exactly how much is going to be taken from. lifetime allowance and the fact that this is is going to increase and this is certainly an aspect that we get a lot of questions from advisors in this area asking about the age 75 and Mm. how you can help clients work out what the best solution is and how Mm. complicated this can be because of the aspects to do with it's all to do with your personal circumstances how old you are? How many benefits beneficiaries you've got? Are you carrying on working? How many other assets do you have? What's the sort of income stream you're expecting from all of those? So it's so so complicated area, and I think it it's something that pensions is becoming increasingly more complicated. My colleague Tom Selby always does a he does a very good stand-up routine where he's talking about how much can you pay in mm. to a pension and he covers exactly all the annual allowances and things like that. And it's so complicated really when you think about it to explain to someone where you can pay this amount of money but it might be forty thousand pounds but that is including your employers and it's also including your tax relief and blah 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 and then all the mpaA and the tapered and everything else and it's very very complicated and we really do need to to do something about this. Sometimes it feels it's an uphill battle. For example, one of the things I'm looking at at the moment is the new rules coming in for the normal minimum pension age. Mm. And I find this one a, a, a really, I don't know, it's a disappointing one in a way because it's. I just feel like I shouldn't be wasting my time doing this because it is so complicated and it's just been made more and more complicated really unnecessarily so, and I'm not entirely sure why the Treasury has brought in such a complicated solution to something which should have been quite an easy, simple
0: promise. It feels as if they bend over backwards to eliminate exceptions. You know, there's a consistent theme there. Rather than just going, let's go for a big picture good solution, they say, no, 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 we must tighten every screw and come up with a perfect solution and in the process create all these little wrinkles and nuances in the rules that that make things difficult to explain.
1: And that's so bizarre because after being through tax simplification, which was 16 years ago, it was when I got married 16 years ago. and But that was the whole idea of A-Day yes. and pension tax simplification was let's look at broad brush approaches. You know, there can be some winners, some losers, but you have to go with simplification and just a general one set of rules, making it easy and simple and the pensions rules that they eliminated at that time were complicated. It was three different types of occupational pension rules for three different regimes. It was really horrible. So it was the right way forward. But over time, it's just got more and more complicated. And I think now we are getting to the point where we really need to have another
0: look at this. Sorry, I was just going to say, that was, thinking back to it, so that was the second term of the Blair government that that work was done. Mm. So, yes, it was 2006, but the work was being done 2004, 2005. Yeah. They still had a lot of political capital then. They had freedom to manoeuvre, the economy was in good shape. In fact, they just kind of turned on the taps on the public spending that context, I think, is really important. And, you know, I my understanding is the Treasury's just got zero appetite for that kind of activity right now. So I think that 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 is a challenge we face.
1: It is. And it it, it is complicated as well. It, for example, you know, there's, there's so much chat about uh, creating a single pension tax relief rate. Mm. And we'll just go with that. And I know from looking at that, that it never works out that easy, or that simple. And the situation is that, majority, not the majority maybe but uh, such a significant proportion of tax relief is spent on defined benefit schemes and trying to uh, repay the deficit that they are in and trying to recovery plans and extra contributions because of that that I think you might end up with a situation where you just make changes for DC and define contribution but we need to get fairness I think between the two regimes. Between defined benefits and defined contribution, and to make sure that we don't treat one more fairly than the other. But I think we do need to recognize that they are different and increasingly so, and especially since 2015 in the introduction of yes. pension freedoms, that sometimes in our efforts to treat them they're the same, we're trying to make them the same. And I don't think we can. I think that genie's out of the bottle and long gone you know yeah, it's not it's just not the way we can't go back in time they are two different ways of trying to achieve maybe the same thing maybe not trying to achieve the same thing you can argue about that <laughs>
0: yeah. but
1: it's looking at defined benefit and defined contribution are not the same and maybe we shouldn't be trying to treat them the same
0: i think that's a really interesting point and i mean just on the you know the tax-free cash commutation factor for defined benefit schemes, you know, where they still use that 20 to 1 formulation, which is so much more generous than you'd get on a DC Mm. pension. So, I mean, there are so many ways in which, as you say, they are different. Again, so I absolutely agree with you. And I think it would be a really interesting starting point to create a carve out for DC. The fact that we've now got CDC sitting in the middle doesn't help. If you want to create a set of DC pension (laughs) rules, because oh look, we've got three regimes, not just two.
1: I know, but um, I
0: you know, I'd love. But no no, one's using
1: CDC yet,
0: though, are they? No, but they will. (laughs) Is there anyone out there who's (laughs) going to have a CDC
1: pension? I
0: don't know. (laughs) So, um, you also made a really interesting point. I just want to come back to briefly about higher rate taxpayers and thresholds there, because salary sacrifice. Obviously, with the increase in national insurance, salary exchange or salary sacrifice becomes that much more relevant as a, as a pension funding mechanism, mm. given the increase in national insurance. And as you say, if more and more people are going to be dragged into higher rate tax, that further increases, strengthens the argument in favour of giving up salary as, 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 a, as a pension contribution. So, you know, arguably, it's something all employers should be doing now, and I know many still don't.
1: I think so, and it's really relying on... Um, There's so many employers who do do this and so many people who do benefit from it who are in workplace pensions. How you get more employers to do this is is difficult. If they're working with an advisor, a financial advisor, then obviously that's something that will be pointed out to them when they're setting up their workplace pensions and things like that. But I really don't think most employers will be aware of that or maybe fully aware of the benefits of doing this. And certainly their workforce aren't going to be, you know, going into work demanding it either because it's a complicated and thing. People and the Treasury is probably not it. going to
0: tell them to do it, are they? No,
1: exactly. <laughs> so it's trying to get the message out there. But obviously, it, you know, the more employees who can do this, the, the better it is for their for their workforce, yes. But it's it's trying to get
0: the message out. So a couple of, th- couple of things I wanted to pick up on the coming back with saying the spring statement. I mean, one thing I think is worth just acknowledging and passing, that increase in the NI threshold and aligning it with the income tax personal allowance, that is unequivocally a good thing, right? I mean that we should yes. we should welcome that. Taking low earners out of the tax system altogether. And to your point, national insurance, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, yes, it is a tax. You know, they might call it national insurance, but it's a tax. So aligning those, I think, is a really good thing, both because it simplifies affairs Mm -hmm. and because it takes Mm -hmm. more low earners out of the system. Yeah. Would you agree with that?
1: I agree with that. Yeah, I think it's easier and it's simpler. If you actually have to sit down and explain to people exactly how tax works, then you know, it it does get confusing. As I said before, there's so many thresholds, especially with national insurance, different thresholds and different levels. And it it does get confusing. So to have a simple message that if you pay, if you earn less than £12,570, then you don't pay any tax or national insurance. It's it's got to be good, hasn't it? Yeah, Yeah.
0: for sure. But something else that caught my eye and many others as well was the line about the increased tax revenue from pension freedoms, yes. which had been projected to be $1.3 yes. in the current tax year, sorry, I think it was in the 2021 tax year, and have now been estimated up to $1.7 yes. And what's that saying to us is there are more people taking more money out of their pension pots. And given the last couple of years we've been through, that's perhaps not surprising. But I mean, what's your take on that? Is that something we should be worried about? In a way...
1: There's, there's two aspects, isn't there? I mean, is is pension freedoms, pension flexibility, you know, a good thing or a bad thing? Because we always like to look at these things in black and white, don't we? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just, just either one thing or the other. No nuances. But I mean, it is a good thing. It helps a lot of people achieve what they want to do. It means that you can use your pension pot and your pension income in the best way possible for you. And and that's hugely positive. And I think the benefits that it's brought for people not being forced down an annuity route as much, you know, those are massive things and it's a massive benefits. But it's got to, again, it's a really tricky decisions though, that when you come up to taking your benefits and you want to take some money out, understanding what the implications of your actions are means that it is very big decisions Big critical decisions, and people need help with that, and to make the the best decisions. And I think this is probably going to segue quite neatly <laughs> into advice it's, and guidance. Do
0: needs a segue to ignore, isn't it? It's, so it's it, it is. Going. It
1: is. So I might just go back a little bit and just say, yeah, I think I think we have to be aware of how many people how people are using pension freedom and pension flexibility. And we have to be aware of why they are doing things, why they are cashing in. You know, it's still 55% of people fully withdraw their pot when you're looking at, and that was looking at the um, FCA figures.
0: But also most of those um, pots are really small, aren't they?
1: They are, yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that, yeah. And some of those pots are very, very small and there's very good reasons why people are doing this. And that's why it's. I think it's difficult Or it just doesn't make sense to take a couple of really, you know, one overriding sentiment from this and say, that's a bad thing that people are cashing in their money or something like that. You can't do that. It's much more nuanced. Life is much more nuanced. And we've got to understand how people are using their pots and how they are using their money, but also why they are making certain decisions and what help and guidance they're getting in the run up to making those decisions and trying to figure out. A nuanced response as well, because I don't think it's as simple to say everybody needs a pension-wise guidance appointment and then the whole world will be okay again. I don't think it works like that because we are talking about people and we're talking about their different circumstances and different people work in different ways. They react in different ways. They're all trying to achieve something different. They've got different levels of wealth in different types of assets as well as the pension so we need a nuanced help and a nuanced response to so a nuanced question
0: that that's a really interesting point um, and i think that does kind of lead us on to this whole question of advice and guidance i mean, just in that context i think i just want to make the point that I did this review of the Money and Pension Service last year. And one of the things that struck me there was uh, I felt they weren't, that they could do more to work with the pensions industry in facilitating access to guidance. You know, I'm struck by the fact that businesses like AJ Bell and Hargreaves, where I used to work, and many others have a relationship with their customers, communicate with their customers. They are the first port of call for the customers because that's where my money is. And so mm-hmm. this principle of, you know, yes, but you should get some guidance as you approach retirement and an impartial public service that helps you get that guidance, that makes sense. And I think it, that that impartiality is really important. But at the same time, I see a lot of innovation across the industry in in communication, some really clever stuff going on. And I'd really like to see more collaboration between the pension wise service which is good but hardly reaches anybody and the industry which reaches everybody but perhaps could benefit from a little bit of impartiality and you know somewhere in the middle seems to me like a good place to go.
1: I think it's the pension wise at the moment I'm looking at uh, we're looking at introducing the the rules on stronger nudges and this is actually taking up quite a lot of time for something that should be really quite simple and quite easy. Again, there are always hidden depths within this and and, and we're trying to to bring in this, the stronger nudge. And I struggle with some aspects of the stronger nudge because it, what we're doing is we're stopping a process. You know, we, we're getting people who are saying, right, today I am ringing up AJ Bell and I want to get my tax-free cash and I want to put the rest into drawdown. And they are doing that on that day because they don't just wake up and do it. They do a lot Mm. of research before they get to that point, because they have to know about their options. They have to think about it. They have to go through them. And once they've actually made their decision, then they get in touch with us. And at that point, we're trying to put a, a stop in the process to say to them, go off and get guidance. And Really, that's not the time to do it. But it's not the wrong thing to do. And throughout all the communications we send out for you invest, all the websites, everything, we mention pension wise so much. We really do. We'd never try ever to hide it. We're we're keen that people go and get as much help as they possibly can. That they understand that the decisions they're making, uh, and we we do so much to say. Go and look at pension guidance. Go and look at Pension Wise. It's great. It's there to help you make these sort of decisions and we flag it all the way through. So I don't think any provider has a problem with highlighting it or saying this thing exists. This is really good and it will help you. The timing of the nudge to an appointment is just the wrong time. And for that reason, I'm not entirely sure it's going to work. But we need to think more about if we are flagging it all the way along the process, why aren't more people taking advantage of it? Why aren't more people, you know, because it's not as if we're hiding it, we are putting it fairly high up, it's good prominence, we're saying, go and get this help. So your point about whether there's more we can do, we think there is, we think it's, it's not a case, I don't think, as I said, I don't think pension-wise should give the answer to everybody because it's obviously not for everybody and there's some people out there who you can say well it's independent guidance and it's independent from and you know it's provided by the government and there are some people who go well I don't trust the government <laughs> why are they doing this is it because they can get more tax if I do the things that they tell me to do you know so they might not believe the government so you've got to have a different solutions for different people and I Providers are in the position where we we know our customers and we've got we have information about them, but we know the type of customer that we have and what they're trying to achieve. And I think there's a a lot more that we can probably do to help them consider what decisions they're making and to really understand the question, because this really does feel like it's not finding the answer as much. It's it's understanding what. The question is, what are the options and what are my choices? And therefore, what are the implications from it? And what does it mean for me? And there are lots that we could do to help people make better decisions, I think, at retirement. But a lot of what we do at the moment is that we providers are aware that this boundary exists between advice and guidance. And it's set by PIRG and PERG makes it difficult for us and we I think there's a genuine desire for us to help our customers make the right decisions and better decisions targeted yet,
0: communication but not a recommendation
1: yeah yeah so we want to give them the right nudges get them to think about the right things to think maybe to point things out to them but not to give them recommendations we don't want to do that that's not what we're we're there to do but we have information we can give them nudges we can make it better for them and to make them understand the question more and i think through doing that then they will have a better idea of what their possible responses are and also it will help people maybe value advice more as well yeah because you know it is like i, I for, for me personally if i thought oh i'm coming up to retirement how should i arrange all my pensions and all the rest of it and i think it's one of these sort of things that the more you know, the more you realise you don't know. Yeah, well, that's life. That's, that's life. The more you know about things, the more you realise you really yeah, don't know a yes. lawful lot that's going on and therefore you need help. And I think actually it would even help push more people into taking advice and getting a personal recommendation about what they need to do.
0: I think the advocates for the Stronger Nudge have, have made that argument very strongly that, you know, in the end, more take up a pension-wise will be good for the industry because it will lead more people to go, as you said, look, this is actually quite complicated. I actually need someone Mm -hmm. to tell me what to do. But in the meantime, you know, I'm really sympathetic to the arguments that, that you and your colleagues at AG Bell and others have been making, that greater latitude for more targeted communication and nudges and guidance to customers Stopping short of a personalized recommendation would make the world a better place in helping customers. But- I
1: think so I think a lot of the things that we we feel nervous about doing or nervous about saying, and then you think, well this is this is ridiculous in a way. I mean, there's there's a lot of conversations about trying to get customers to make better investment decisions. and having lived through the retirement outcomes review, mm-hmm. which is another, an introduction of investment pathways. Uh, There's so much conversations about getting people to stop sitting in cash. Now, obviously, that's what we all want. That's got to be better if people have a better idea about what sort of investments that they can take and why sitting in cash in the current environment of high inflation is, is such a bad idea. So one of the things maybe we would like to do is to you know help people through a risk profiler to get them to figure out what risk profile they are but by doing that we're also getting them to help them understand what their level of risk is But getting them to understand what risk is as well what another so question it's an
0: education process it's as well. got
1: to be hasn't it and again yeah. it's coming back to this i'm not so sure we want to point out that the answer is i'm going to bring hitchhiker's guidance to the galaxy into this okay. um the answer is not necessarily 42 we may all know the answer is 42 but sometimes we're just trying to figure out what the actual question <laughs> the is question and then is,
0: yeah.
1: and we're figuring out what this ultimate question is and people need to understand how risk works and give examples to walk through that's a really active way of getting instead of getting to read some text you've been asking you questions about what would you do in this situation or what would you do in that situation really highlights to people how to quantify risk or how to measure it or or what effect does it have on your finances? so if we could do something like that and have a risk profiler and then maybe point to a a small range of funds with that particular risk profile, then that's got to be a better environment than mm. them opening up something and seeing. 4,000 or 5,000 or 6,000 funds and going, right, well, where do I start from here?
0: Quietly shut the lid again. Yeah, well, look, in that context, I I was quite optimistic as I read through the FCA's PRIPS paper that they put out towards the end of last week for, for a couple of reasons. One, because they cited towards the end of the paper various examples of simpler and more effective communication, including, I mean, give a name check to the pensions passport was one of the things they referenced, something that Andy Tully and I worked on together. And, you know, they acknowledged that a simple one- or two-page statement is surprisingly more effective at getting people to act than a 50-page statement is. And you know, who'd have thought it? And, um, you know, using graphics and using talking to people about their money rather than their capital being at risk. So there's lots of simpler communication that can, surprisingly, have, have a beneficial effect on people's behaviour. So, so that was good. You know, it's not like they don't get this stuff. I was also really encouraged to see that peppered throughout the paper... Were references to the Treasury's review of regulation. You know, this is a post-Brexit mm. thing. You know, we've got more latitude now. We can make up our own rules over time, and you know, it came through very strongly. There is more to come on this front. You know, the FCA is clearly signalling again and again. It talked about its business strategy and that investment paper that came out towards in the last year. We are going to do more on regulation. So. They're clearly looking at all of this. Whether they come up with the right answers or not remains to be seen. But it feels like there's an opportunity looming on this front.
1: I think so, and I think if you look at the other regulations, a lot of the regulatory. Environment at the moment, if you look at consumer duty, mm. and if we're looking at the non-workplace pensions as well, there's a lot of push at the moment, I think, to look at this. I mean, the consumer duty, again, is peppered with lots of references about helping people make better investment decisions based on their personal circumstances and their risk profile. For example. So there's a lot that the the FCA is recognizing and the pension regulator as well, hopefully is recognizing to do this and to help give support to people without crossing this boundary. We don't want to cross the boundary. We want, we just want to know where the boundary is. <laughs> and to maybe just shift it slightly so that it gives a little bit more leeway to be really to be helpful and to help customers
0: and in that spectrum of help to customers so so yeah I absolutely agree with you um I was interested so something you tweeted about and that also caught my eye was the FT advisor piece about a financial advisor called Helena Wardle who's launching Mm. I don't. I, There's no, there nothing about pricing, but I, by cent it's probably a low cost. But this concept of a, a subscription advisory model for the younger generation, which I thought was really interesting. You know, someone's trying to invent a new delivery mechanism for financial advice. So on the other side of that line that we've just talked about, it would actually be regulated advice. But I thought that was interesting, and I'm, I'm, I mentioned your thoughts on that and whether you think you know a subscription model could take off.
1: Well, I've got um, a huge amount of respect for Helena. I know that she is, she's very passionate about what she does and she's just trying to think about this differently and you've got to respect her for doing that. And there's, I think there might be some people who will say, well, this won't fly, it won't work, but she's considering the environment that we're living in at the moment and, and how we operate. And I was thinking about this and thinking, well, subscription, okay, so what do I pay for by subscription? I was thinking, well, actually i pay for my entertainment i do all, all the streaming and netflix whatever it happens to be uh, spotify i pay for my vegetables i get a vegetable box every two weeks or whatever i pay for my beer that way Is it my beer could be my husband's beer i'm not sure oh you, you have a
0: beer subscription do you
1: we have a beer subscription, but that's that's because I listened to too many cycling podcasts that gave me <laughs> money off, I think. So it's linked to all that. I have a gin subscription as well. Um, so there's so many things, but if I think about it, and this could be a result of the pandemic as well, but if I think about it two, three years ago, I don't think I had hardly any of those. So it just shows yeah. you how differently we consume yeah, in the UK. And I think what Helen has just gone is gone, well, actually, yeah. This is the way it works. And people are used to do that, used to paying a subscription and getting a certain amount of value back from that subscription. And instead of operating in the way that you you go and you just buy a one-off transaction for want of a better expression. Mm. And she's saying, well, actually, what we'll do is the subscription because people understand subscriptions and they they want, you know, that's how they buy other parts of their life. And that's how they operate in other parts of their life. So why not financial services as well? And so when I was thinking about it, I thinking well, probably the trick there is to make sure that you get you value what you're getting for your subscription, isn't it? Yes. I mean, that's that's the trick to life, isn't it? Well, yeah, and and so the industry you, like is not my, always,
0: you know, advisors have not always been comfortable with selling the value of their advice, and and no, you know, no. which is why it's always been much easier just to take commission, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and it's just off when you do that one thing, when you sort out what their investments are, or when you say transfer this pension plan to this one, and you are doing something, and you can demonstrate the value. Mm. And I think what Helen is doing is she's turning this completely on its head and saying, well, they do more than that regular communications all of all of that element regular advice and being able to to move from i think she's talking about moving in between automated advice and hybrid advice and, and trying to fix on that but also just an ongoing stream of advice and communication and help and i was also listening to one of your podcasts i think from a couple of weeks ago when you were talking to the, and I, I'm really sorry, I can't remember the financial advisor's name, but she was very interesting. She only looked after, I think, 35 families or something yep, like sure. that. But there's obviously to look after the, that smaller number of customers, the clients. Lisa, sorry. She, I had yeah, a mental blank a, for
0: a moment there, Lisa.
1: Yeah. yeah. No, she was really interesting, really, really interesting podcast. But it, the way that she was doing it and to looking after those particular people, and but that's obviously not a transaction model either, is it? They would not be working in that way. They're, they're getting in touch on a regular basis. Yes. They're keeping the communications going. They're there to hold their hands. They're there to do all of those sort of things. And I think that's just what Helena's the same model in a way, but just bringing it down for a different part and different customers who at the moment maybe can't access other parts of financial advice
0: and good luck to her you know I hope, yes I hope absolutely good. So, and you know i think uh, that's the sign of a healthy market where people are trying out new models and and they won't all succeed but it'd be great to see hers prosper
1: yes yeah no i wish you all the very best to that
0: good stuff rachel let's wrap it up there it's been really good to talk to you again thank you for all your thoughts on that and we'll no doubt speak again soon yeah
1: thanks very much
0: I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, then do please consider leaving a positive review and maybe even subscribing for future episodes. The sound engineer was Ross Burns. Thank you for listening.